listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. stars okay for the rest of us as, as we read through this and this is where i'm gonna need your help all right so i want us to see seven things from this passage this morning but i also am going to ask several more questions that are going to require us to answer verbally out loud y'all ready for that okay cool thank you Stuart. um what stands out to you from the passage from psalm chapter 8 what stands out to you the majestic name of god yeah what else that he's doing it, yeah. Say it again. Yeah, yeah. The glory of God, yeah, he's establishing this. Anything else stand out? He has to reveal it? Yeah. Go ahead, Luke. Yeah. Yeah. So God cares for his creation. We praise him. His love for us leads to our worship. Yeah. Somebody over here? Was I hearing things? Ben, you wanted to say something. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Our weakness throughout the passage. Yeah. Yeah. God is glorified through our weakness. Yeah. What was repeated that might clue us in, and we saw this on the video, but what was repeated that might clue us in to the meaning of this chapter? Oh, Lord, our Lord, yeah. Did you say that, Nikki? Yeah, so verse 1 and verse 8, the exact same. And like we saw in the video, that's called an inclusio in Latin, also known as bookends. So we have, here's what this chapter is about. It's about the glory and majesty of God. And in fact, as we look at the book of Psalms, this is the first psalm of praise. Every psalm has a different theme that it fits into. This is actually the very first psalm that's one strictly of praise. So let's jump in. We begin in verse number one, O Lord, our Lord. He uses the, the name Lord twice. Now, if you, if you actually look at the, right under the, uh, pericope, the, the beginning, how majestic is your name. You see, this is to the choir master according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. You might know what a Giddith is? Yeah, neither do theologians. So uh, we begin with verse number one. So we, we th they think it's probably just some sort of stringed instrument, maybe a guitar. We don't really know. It doesn't really matter for the sake of the chapter. But why do we see the name Lord twice? Why is, why is it twice at the beginning? Anybody notice that? Yes. He wants to start his book about the glory of God with good theology. And every, doc, every good doctrine book that you read begins with the doctrine of God, with the Trinity. But if you notice there, and this is on your printed copy, and it's also probably in your physical Bible if you have that, or a digital Bible, you notice how Lord, the first one is capitalized. The second one is like in all caps, L-O-R-N-D, or capitalized. So whenever we see Lord in all caps, in the Hebrew, that means Yahweh. So he says, O Yahweh. And actually, this is the only psalm in all the psalms that begins with the name of 
Yahweh. And so in the Hebrew, the first word is actually Yahweh, not O, oh, it's Yahweh. And so he's saying, this is about our creator God, who is personal, who created us in his image, whose essence fills the world. And then he says, secondly, we have the second Lord with a capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and that's a title for the Lord. So he says, our king, who is King God as a person, he's saying, yeah, he's our king. So, oh, Yahweh, our Lord, he is the Lord. So he's essentially doubling down on this, on the divine, the divine presence of God. But notice, right, in between those two lords, what's that word there? Our. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning, is that this is not a song about God, but this is a song to him. This is not a song just about God. He's not saying, oh, Lord, up there somewhere. He's saying this is a song about God. So however you come in this morning, whatever you're going through, if he is your Lord, then you are speaking to him through this song, and he is speaking to you through his word. Yes, you. Unworthy you. He's speaking to us this morning. We keep going through this first verse. Everybody pack a lunch? Everybody good? Might take us a while. It's only nine verses, but we'll probably make it. That's what I'm talking about. Ronnie had a big breakfast. Notice how he says, how majestic is your name. We'll look at majestic in a second. But notice he says your name. There's a lot to be said. There's a lot that's wrapped up in a name, right? If you have kids, or if you're about to have kids, you ever thought about having kids, if one day you hope to have a girlfriend so you can get married so you can have kids, whatever it is, uh, you, you choose that name specifically for something. Nobody's just like, random name book, and okay, hesitations. All right, that's his name, you know, like, no, you find a name that's specific. There's a lot wrapped up in a name. Let's take the other side of that. Maybe if you're like me, your parents told you once or twice, you are ruining our family name. You ever been there? I mean, sorry, have your kids ever been there? You know, because there's a lot wrapped up in a name. When he says your name, you're saying, this is who I am. This is my essence. A lot is wrapped up in my name. But notice what he says about the name. It's majestic. How majestic is your name? Or maybe if you have an older translation, it may even say magnificent. How majestic, how magnificent is your name? He, he is beginning here by talking about the greatness of God. And all of creation cannot even contain the greatness of God. But creation is filled with the greatness of God. How far? The expanse of his beauty and his power fills all the earth. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord and God, your greatness, your magnificence, your name, your beauty, your power fills all the earth, everything that we see. The second thing I want you to see this morning is this, that the greatest threat to modern Christianity is distraction. You will become a shell of yourself if you neglect to observe and to understand the character and nature and work of God. Notice the psalmist here begins with a look, man, that's who God is. Now the response from my heart is such that I want to worship and love him. Now I am filled. There are so many things that distract us, our cell phones, television, sports, 
kids, families, jobs, whatever it is, we want to fill our lives as much as possible. The greatest threat is distraction. And so if we look at verse number one here, all those things that we distract ourselves with, what Psalm 8 verse number one is saying is, you don't get it. You don't get the majesty, the beauty, the power, the glory of God. If you did, you wouldn't be able to do anything else besides look at him and worship. Sounds kind of like heaven, right? You would be enthralled with that. He says here, be reminded of the glory of God. Then look at the second half of that verse. Verse 1, you have set your glory. Everybody say glory, which is the, the Hebrew word chod. Everybody say chod. Good work. All right, so that's just, if you want to write that down, it's like H-O-D. I'm not going to tell you how to write it in Hebrew because I forgot. So we see the word glory here. Your glory is above the heavens. But where else do we see that word glory appear in, ch in chapter 8? Where else do we see it? Yeah, we're, so that's where we see it the first time. Where do we see it the second time? Verse 5. You have made who a little lower than the heavenly beings? Us. A lot of times, even as you read through this, you're like, oh, you have set him. Oh, this is talking about Jesus. So it's talking about glory, right? He, he's talking about Jesus. No, not in this context. He's talking about man. And what does he say about man? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And we'll get there in, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half. Uh, and crowned him with glory, with hold and honor. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. That's pretty powerful stuff. The glory of God. Man, look at God's glory. But then look, we are also crowned with glory. We are his, and that's a royal term right there, this word glory. We are his royal representatives on the earth. We represent the character, the nature, the presence of God. And then look at verse number two. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. In other words, and this is a really weird verse, a lot of different takes on it if you read different commentaries. But here's the thing. Seemingly intelligent, really religious people, they think they have everything figured out. They think they can, they can make sense of the glory of God. They think they can make sense of the righteousness of God while simultaneously denying the power and the glory of Jesus. We think if we can put God in this little box and figure it all out, oh, I can understand his glory, then, then we can become bigger. We can't. First, he's saying, if babies, they're the ones who are going to preach the good news to those who think they have everything figured out. And like the video said, Matthew chapter 21, in Matthew 21, we see Jesus coming into the temple with a whip, knocking over tables, saying, what, what's wrong with you, bunch of Pharisees? What is y'all's problem? Why do you think that you can earn my favor? And then we have these little kids who are saying, Hosanna, praise God. And they're like, what? No, 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 no. He's not living up to our expectations. Jesus is not doing what we think that he should be doing. And Jesus there quotes Psalm chapter 8. He says, have you not heard that it's written down somewhere? And he quotes, you can look at Matthew 21. I don't know what verse. He, he quotes verse number 2 here from Psalm 8. In other words, he's saying, man, my glory, even babies recognize it. And when you look at a small baby who's just babbling away, that's my glory. It's on display. It's everywhere. So then we get in verse number three. Verse number three says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, 
which you have set in a place. There are, I was doing some, some research uh, last night on just, I don't know what I Googled, probably like cool universe stats or something. You know, um, this is what y'all pay us for. Um, so I, I was looking at how many stars are there in the heavens? And I've got to read this to you, okay? There are 100 quintillion stars that they have counted. Not, they probably didn't count all those. But they have estimated there are 100 quintillion stars, and there are even more planets in the universe. 100 quintillion, by the way, is one with 25 zeros following it. That's a lot of stars. And he says here, this is the handiwork of God. There are two trillion galaxies in our universe. Two trillion. Even in our Milky Way galaxy, there are 200, 200 billion with a B. There are 200 billion solar systems in our galaxy. Which, if you're like me, these numbers, just, it just like blows your mind. You're just like, okay, cool. It's just a lot of zeros, right? But, but here's a way to imagine it. Somebody have a coffee cup? Who's got a coffee cup? Just hold it up so I can see it, so we can all see it. Okay, thank you, Gabe. So you see this coffee cup right here? So imagine if all of North America is the Milky Way galaxy, the one in which we live, all right? So uh, currently, um, as far as we know, unless this is like Inception, and then we don't even know. I'm just kidding. So imagine that all of North America is the Milky Way galaxy. Our solar system is the size of that coffee cup compared to all of North America. North America is the Milky Way galaxy. That coffee cup is our solar system, which includes the sun and eight, nine, ten planets, depending on which year it is. Uh, we have these planets going around the sun. That's our solar system. That's pretty incredible. NASA, they said... And the, you can put that. Thank you. No, no, leave it. Just hold it up for no reason. I'm just kidding. NASA actually said that if we were to send a message at the speed of light, which is like, what, 186,000 miles per second, something like that? Any science nerds? Something like, okay. If we were to send a message to the edge of the universe, which is continuing to expand, at the speed of light, it would take 15 billion light years for it to get there. And as we see right here, this is just... This is just finger painting to God. All of this, as we look out, that our minds can't even comprehend, what does the psalmist say? He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. You think that the artwork of your kid is decent enough to put on your refrigerator, and your kid's not Picasso or Rembrandt, and this is just finger painting to Jesus. He says, you know what? Stars, moons, planets, trillions, billions, hundreds of billions, quintillions, whatever it is, that's finger painting you want to put on the fridge. Like, this is good. Our idea of beauty pales in comparison to the beauty and to the glory of what Christ has done. Look at verse number four. Now, this is where it gets kind of tricky. This is interesting, right? He says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Notice what he doesn't say. David doesn't say, who is man? Who would have been a personal pronoun, right? At least there's some sort of individuality. There's some sort of essence that would be there if he said who. He doesn't even say who. He uses the word, Hebrew word here, ma, which means what. What is man? Is he nothing? When I look at the heavens, I'm but dust. I'm but a speck. My life is but a vapor. 
here one day, gone the next. So he says, what am I? He uses this word son here, Adam, which means weak, frail, fragile. Life is fleeting. Life has difficulty. You're here and then you're gone. If the psalm were to stop right here, what would we be left to conclude? What would be the takeaway from Psalm 8 if it ended in verse number 4? Anybody? You might question your value. Yeah. That we're unworthy. Yeah. That we have no glory and honor. Yeah, you, you'd be questioning how much God loves man, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and we'll see that in a second. But if, but if, we, if, if we simply end with, man, the glory of God, what is man? Way down here, there's this insurmountable, unbreachable chasm between God and man. The glory of God, look at his artwork. Look at man. He is nothing. But notice what the psalmist does. He actually turns that understanding. He flips it on his head, and he says what you said right there, Tracy. He says, he's, notice what he says in verse number four. What is man that you are mindful of him? That you are mindful. Listen, friend, listen. You fill the mind of God. God's mind is full of thoughts about you. You can go read Psalm, I think next week we'll be looking at Psalm 139. You can read other Psalms. It says that the thoughts of God for us are more than the grains of sand on the seashore. That's a lot. We fill the mind of God. What is man? Yet you are mindful of him. Look at the second half of that verse. The son of man, that you care for him. Friend, he thinks of you. He cares for you. He understands every part of who you are. You say, he's thinking about us? He's concerned with us? He senses my emotion? How, how many times I was talking to a brother this past week, not my biological brother, my spiritual brother, and he was talking about things that are happening at work, and he said, man, I'm just, I'm just all up in my feelings. I just, in a way of, hey, I'm, I'm feeling this, and I don't need to be, because feelings are bad. Why would God be concerned with this? What does Psalm 8 say? He is. He is not just concerned with what you're feeling. He's concerned with you as you are feeling that. Here's the third thing that I want you to see is however you are this morning, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and this goes for this morning, this afternoon, tomorrow, next week, the rest of this year, however you are, he is here with you. He is here with you. So as, you, as you're sitting here, and as you're sitting in your truck this next week, if you're sitting in your home trying to uh, discipline your kids or trying to deal with a coworker or wrestling through sin, he is right there with you as you are grieving, as you are smiling. He is caring for you. He is smiling with you. He is grieving with you. 
And as we're sensing those things, we remember that we are mortal creatures. And when we remember our mortality, we recover who we are. Because the lie back in Genesis 3 was you can be like God. And our culture, our lives, and everything around us screams that at us. Man, if you could just be in control, if you could just be God, wouldn't it be awesome? And we pursue that with everything that we have. We think we know what's best for us, and so we pursue that with our energy, with our strength, with our time. And yet here we see, no, no, I can be reminded that I am fallen, that I am mortal, that I am but dust, that I am going to die, and yet God has time for me. That's the essence of who I am. He has given me inherently an identity. It's his. Like we said, it's been gifted by him. We fill the mind of God. Here's the fourth thing that I want you to see is that when you see how great God is, and how fragile and fleeting you are, you equally see how profoundly you matter. And it requires both of those, the grandeur of God and the fragility of man. Then we see, man, we matter so much in the mind of God. Verse number five, and this is a beautiful word, and I missed it while we were reading it out loud together. The word yet. So if we end it with, with, chat, with verse number four, just thinking about the difference between God and man, he says, yet. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. We don't actually know what that heavenly beings is. Some people would say, oh, well, it means angels. Original translations actually have that as, uh, as God. And so we don't know if it means a little lower than heavenly beings, a little lower than God himself. We're not really sure. Uh, but he says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So that when we look at the galaxies in the night sky, so as we look up into the heavens, like he said back there in verse number three, as you look at the galaxies in the night sky, or even easier, as you look at the person beside you, you see the glory of God on display. So look at somebody else in this room. Look at your neighbor, your kid, somebody you don't want to look at. somebody that you love, somebody that you don't even know, somebody that you wish you didn't know. And what does Psalm 8 say? It says, that person is crowned with the glory of God. So as we walk, as we're in our homes with our wives who are making us upset, I had somebody tell me this morning, man, you don't understand, no joke, they said, you don't understand the fight that I had with my spouse this morning. If you did, you wouldn't be, I'm like, that person is crowned with honor and glory, and so are you. The easiest way to see the glory of God is not by simply looking at creation, looking at stars, looking at galaxies. He says, yet, if you want to see the glory of God most clearly on display, then look at him in your home, with your spouse, with your kids, as you go to work, as you go to, to the gym, as you go to the gas station. There we see those individuals being crowned with the glory of God. Here's my next question for us to answer out loud. If we were to see people like that, as verse number five says, crowned with glory and honor from God, if we were to see people like that, how would, how would our culture, how would our lives look different? Let's just stick with, let's stick with culture. How would our culture at large look different if we saw others crowned with the glory of God? Anybody? Anybody? 
Awkward? Maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. It would be surprising to folks. Yeah. What else? How would our culture shift if we saw each other as being crowned with the glory of God? Equality? Yeah. More generous? Yeah. Yeah, no more division, strife, conflict, us versus them. What else? Love? Yeah. Say it again. Yeah, you would value life in the womb, in the, um, I don't know, in the medical bed. I'm, I'm trying to think like, you know, the, we're trying to get rid of babies. We're trying to get rid of the elderly, right? We would value life. You have a feeling of purpose? Yeah. Yeah, a greater sense of community? Say it again. <laughs> I'm not going to repeat that for the podcast. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's true. He said there'd be no PETA. <laughs> but as we, if we were to see others, there, we, would, we would find racism detestable. We would find abortion would make us sick to our stomachs. As we looked around, we thought, man, I'm better than that person. Or they, ah, man, I can't believe it. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm above them in some way. There would be no more of that. Man, this person is crowned with the glory of God. Here, here's a more particular question. If we saw each other as South Point, Locust Grove, if we saw each other in being crowned with glory and honor, like verse 5 says, how would our church look different? How would our church look different? Higher standard of value? Yeah. What do you say, Chris? Community? Same answer. Okay. That's true. Yeah, we, we would be like Christ. What would that look like, though? More gracious? Somebody said something back here? Say it again, sorry. More loving? Yeah. We would help those in need, yeah. Greater humility. Yeah. Yeah. Intimacy relationship with other believers, yeah. Our concern for each other would change, would it not? Our comparison to each other would be no more. My preferences would be out the window. Man, what this person did or said or their stance on this or what they posted on social media. Man, this person is my brother, my sister, because they are crowned with the glory of God. And every time I say that, maybe, maybe you're like me. There's something in your gut that's just like, yeah, but, right? They're, they're crowned with the glory, yeah, but, right? And I wasn't even planning on saying that. That's not in my notes. But even as I say it, I'm like, yeah, but what about that person over there? Yeah, except, except for her. 
Yeah, but you don't understand what this person, no, man. They're crowned with the glory and honor of God. Here's the fifth thing that I want us to see. Do you want to see the glory of God on display? We can look around, but you can also look in the mirror. If you want to see the glory of God on display, then look in the mirror. What do you normally see when you look in the mirror? Anybody? Flaws. Everybody said flaws. Flaws. Okay, amen. My dad's talked about having one of those mirrors, like the magnifying mirrors, you know, and he sees the giant pores in his nose. It's true. He doesn't need a magnifying mirror to see those, uh, but they're there. But we see flaws, right? What else do you see when you look in the mirror? A saved sinner? Yeah. What else? Failure. That's what I wrote down. What else? Regret. What are you thinking? Were you asking me? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, man, what are you, what is wrong with you? Anybody see wasted potential? Anybody see the disappointment of their parents? Does anybody see what could have been? Does anybody see hopelessness? But that's not what the word of God says. The word of God says when you look in the mirror, you see someone who is crowned with glory and crowned with honor. From the scriptures, I'm thinking especially Ephesians 1, what does God see when he sees you? He sees Jesus? Yeah, what else? Beloved. What else? Righteous, an heir. Dear children. Say it again. A human project, yeah. What else? Royal priesthood, yeah. His. Redeemed. Someone who is chosen. Someone who is seated. Someone who's part of the family, a son or a daughter. There's an intimacy there. That's what creator God, who went stars, planets, moon, black holes, meteor showers, whatever else is in the universe, boom. That's what he says, that's what he sees when he sees you is loved, chosen, that you belong, that you have a purpose. Look at verse number six. These next three verses, six through eight, he says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. And again, he's, here he's talking. I've actually heard this preached where he was talking about Jesus. He says, oh, well, he must be talking about Jesus here. He's not. He's talking about you. Humans in the flesh, he's talking about you. All sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now, this may be my last question. I don't know. Uh, how did God create on days one through five? If we go back and look at Genesis chapter one and two, how did God create on days one through five versus how he created on day six? Anybody? 
He spoke it into existence, days one through five. What did he do on day number six when he created, what he created on day six? Man. Yeah. He, he didn't just say, man, boom, out of the dust. He breathed life into him. And so God, when he spoke, every, when everything else was created, all inanimate objects, all animals, plants, everything, all of the universe, he said, boom, there it is. All right. Time to go take a nap, you know, catch up on some Netflix or something. But on day six, he said, you know what? I'm going to bend down right here, and I'm going to take this dust that I've already spoken into existence, and I'm going to form it in my likeness, in my image, and then I'm going to breathe my breath into this dust. It's going to have my image. It's going to be like me, my representative. It's going to have my glory placed on its head. It's going to have my breath filling its lungs. It's going to have a purpose unlike anything else. I'm speaking to it. I'm speaking through it. I'm giving it not just life. I'm giving it my life. That's the difference. That's the difference between verse, uh, verse 4, who is man, and the rest of verses 6 through 8, all the sheep, oxen, birds, the fish, when he creates us, friend, is personal. It's relational. On the first five days, what does, G, what does God say when he gets through creating? He says, and it was good. Day six, what does he say when he gets through creating? And it was very good. There's a distinction there. We are not just a little higher than the animals. We're not just a more sophisticated mammalian species. No, we're just a little lower than God and the heavenly beings. That's our identity, is being crowned with glory and honor. Here's the sixth thing I want you to see, is that your primary identity is that of saint, not of sinner. Years ago, we had some friends, and uh, they, had, they had a couple kids, and they would always refer to their kids in front of them, behind their backs, whenever, as little sinners. Ah, oh, they're just a bunch of little sinners. Hey, you little sinner. Hey, you little heathen. At the time, I thought, yeah, that's good. They need to, te- they need to teach them what they are. Like, they need to have this understanding of our depravity. But I tell you that when God looks at you, he does not see you primarily a sinner. He sees you only a saint. When Paul starts every single one of his letters, you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't say, you bunch of filthy sinners, you bunch of heathens. What does he say? He says, you who are loved, you who are saints, you have, who have found grace and peace in Christ, this letter is for you. Were they jacked up? Absolutely. Are we all sinners? Sure. But what is our primary identity? When God created us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what does he say? You are mine. You are saints. You are holy. You are crowned. You are glorious. You are given honor. You are given my image. You are the imago Dei. Augustine said this a few years ago. He said, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. In other words, your worth comes from God. And this is the last thing that I want us to see. Your worth comes from God for his glory so that you may experience relational beauty. We were created in the image of God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is community. The essence of God is love. 
Not because we just say it, but because there is love happening, interacting with each other. There is perfect community. There was relational beauty. And he says, I'm going to create you for this. This is your designed purpose, is to be in relational beauty with the Trinity. That, friend, is your primary identity. That, as we look here at these first eight verses of Psalm chapter 8, that's what we see. So when was the last time you saw the stars? When was the last time you looked up at the stars and you thought, man, I can see stars, I can see planets. Some of y'all live out, you know, where you don't have indoor plumbing, and so y'all are like, oh, man, last night, you know? But for many of us, city lights, street lights, car lights, our own house lights, they drown out the stars. It doesn't change the reflection of the, it doesn't change the brightness of the star. It doesn't change the, the reflection of the moon. Those are still there, but we are distracted by these smaller, lesser lights all around us. And if I can plead with you, God is there, and the invitation is to experience relational beauty with him. Don't be distracted by these smaller, lesser things. Man, it's so easy. Our world hollers and screams at us, Come here, go do that. Find pleasure here, find satisfaction, safety, security, all these things. And God says, man, in the same way that I've set these stars in heaven, I don't love them even the way that I love you. You are more special to me than every other star in the universe. We can look at them and be reminded of how much we are loved. We see this all throughout in uh, the rest of the story. And I put these verses on the screen a few passages I want to share with you, and then, um, and then we'll partake in communion. The first one from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, it says this, And he put all things under his feet, talking about Christ, and gave him, Jesus, his head over all things to the church. Who is the church? That's us. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How is the glory of God taken to the ends of the earth? Through his church. Who is our head? He is. Where does our glory come from? From him. But we are his hands and his feet. Secondly, I don't know where this passage is. Hebrews chapter 2, it says this. It has been tested. I love how the author of Hebrews says this. It has been testified somewhere. I mean, you'd imagine if this dude's writing a book of the Bible, he'd have a copy of the Old Testament. Anyway, it has been testified somewhere. And then he quotes from Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, who identified with us, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Was Jesus going to taste death if we had never sinned? No. But Christ identified with us. He lived for us. He died for us. He tasted death for us. He put on a crown of thorns. That was a crown of shame, but also a crown of glory, so that we could only receive the crown of glory, not the, not the crown of shame. Then lastly, Revelation chapter 3, as we look forward to this new day. Behold, this is Christ speaking. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Who's he talking about here? Saints. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. We will be granted to sit with him on the throne. And I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He says, you are going to reign and to rule with me for all of eternity. And while we are still here on the earth today, we are his royal representatives. Then we get to verse number nine. All right, you ready? Just like verse number one. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So in the same way that Christ is crowned above all of creation, the way that, we, the way that all of creation finds out about the glory of God is through us his hands, his feet, his body. Sounds kind of like Acts 1.8, kind of like the Great Commission, right? Go therefore make disciples of all the earth. Go to the ends of the earth and tell them about my glory. Tell them about how good I am, about the sacrifice that I've made for them. Sounds real similar to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. I'm going to create man and woman in my image. And what's the one command he tells them? Go be fruitful and multiply. Create more worshipers of me so that my glory fills the earth. The command has not changed. The invitation has not changed. Your identity is sure. It is solid because of Christ. And nothing that we can do will ever change that. We're made for a better reality. We're made for a better kingdom. We're made to experience a better love than what we see around us. And all God's people said, amen. So as we read verse number eight, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth, we're able to rejoice. Man, that is such good news for us. And it's such good news for those around us. So this hopefully brings comfort to our souls. It's a reminder of the love of Christ for us and hopefully it compels us to go and tell others, man, there's, there's a better way to live. There's a better way of life. There's a better love. There is truth. His name is Jesus. And the invitation is for you this morning. Jesus tasted death so that we could be invited to the table. Like we just saw, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I'll come in and eat with them. That is a sign of, it's not Jesus saying, man, I'm hungry. He's saying, this is a sign of intimacy. He steps in and says, I will eat with you. The most intimate thing, nearly, that two people can do, that two friends can do, there's not much more you can than be intimate with eating together. Man, this is a deep need. If we don't do this, we're going to die. We're going to do it together. Jesus says, I tasted death for you so that you can receive my presence. So the invitation for you this morning, friend, is for you to experience full life, for you to experience true love, for you to experience his presence this morning. As we partake in communion, there are stations set up around the room. There's bread there, there's juice. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken the crown of thorns placed on his head. As we eat that, we're reminded that we will not have to be broken, but we can be made whole. The blood represents the righteousness of Christ that covers us. 
So that when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see dirty, filthy, rotten sinners. He sees Jesus in our place. As we eat this, may we be reminded that we have an invitation into his presence this morning. However you are, wherever you are, he is with you in the midst of that. Look to Jesus, run to Jesus. Friends, for those who are in the faith, you are invited to join me as we participate in communion this morning.